I mean, some countries can issue almost martial law when there is a, an emergency to close down cities or, or to forbid uh, people to go out. In my country, Sweden, we don't have those laws. The prime minister cannot close down Stockholm. Welcome to Post-Pandemic Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, and I'm here today with Cecilia Malmström, member of the Swedish Liberal Party, um, and she was, just until the end of last year, European Commissioner for Trade. Um, and before that, EU Commissioner for Home Affairs. So thanks a lot, Cecilia, for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. Cecilia, we wanted to have you on to get a European view of the situation after last week talking to U.S. Senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy. But of course, you're not only a European, you're Swedish, which is really interesting for all of us. So um, let's start there. Sweden, as some people know, has taken a rather different approach um, to containing the virus. Restaurants, schools, Shops have stayed open and uh, the government's just been sort of asking people to be responsible in their distancing. So can you give us some background on why Sweden went that way? How's it worked so far? Well, I think we all have to evaluate the different strategies uh, in the end of this uh, pandemic and to see what worked, what did not work, how can we improve in the future. Sweden chose a um, comparatively softer strategy based on uh, evidence, on science. We have in Sweden very strong and independent authorities where there are experts, scientists who are advising the government. And this um, board of, of health advised to uh, focus on protecting the most vulnerable. So it has been forbidden to visit um, uh, elderly people at hospitals, uh, very severely advised not to visit your grandparents or your parents if they're over 70, and that is very much respected. And there's also a prohibition to visit people who live in elderly homes. The schools up till uh, 15 years have been closed. People are encouraged to have uh, keep social distance. Well, does it work or does it not work? There's also a um, an exit strategy to be thought of. Uh, the, the aim is to keep a rather flat, uh, constant curve so that the healthcare system can cope with the, the sick and those who unfortunately are intensive care and might not uh, make it. Uh, so far this morning, I heard that there are 2,000 deaths. People are rather disciplined, I would say. Restaurants are open, but there are strict restrictions. There has to be two meters, which is a little bit six and a half feet, I think, uh, between the tables. Most restaurants are actually empty. Many have gone bankrupt. Many shops are closed. You see people out walking, but you don't see people in, in shopping malls and in, in crowded places. And there's a prohibition for big gatherings. But it's more recommended than uh, by law, like in more draconian countries like France or, or Spain. I mean, I live in Berlin where uh, up until recently they were being relatively strict about going outside and yet the parks and things were quite full and people were not uh, necessarily sitting that far away uh, from each other. So it sounds like in Sweden uh, there's been a, a higher level of discipline in general. Well, we are rather disciplined <laughs> here and, and uh, people have uh, you know a different social 
social habits. I mean, we, we it's a big country. There are huge areas where hardly anybody lives up, up north. So so uh, distances are, are part of, of, of the geography. But it has to be said that uh, in some um, outdoor restaurants in the big cities, people are not that disciplined. So local authorities are inspecting and they are allowed to close down restaurants or, or to, to, to warn them if they don't keep bigger distances between the tables. And so you're not allowed to order in a bar that is prohibited. So, so they, they're, most people stick to, to, to the rules, but not everybody. But the thing is that now many countries in Europe and also in the US start talking about the exit strategy. Mm. And of course, if you isolated millions of people for six, seven weeks, nobody was allowed to go out. There is a very strong risk of a second wave when they come out. Uh, I think a softer approach, which has now started to be recommended also by by experts and professors from other countries as well. It could be, you know, less dramatic when you gradually ease the restrictions because probably half of the Swedes are already immune to 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 the disease. Mm. It is indeed going to be very interesting to watch uh, the results as we see uh, how it turns out with, you know, all the different approaches in the different countries. So in the U.S., so in Michigan, where I'm from recently, and there were sort of right-wing protests against the stay-at-home orders. And in Berlin, there were left-wing protests recently against the stay-at-home orders. Was there a lot of political controversy initially when Sweden took this different path than its European partners were taking? Or did everything remain pretty calm? Yes, I think, uh, I mean, of course, we have political divisions in this country, like in many others. But during the crisis, there has been a remarkable consensus. And all the political parties are, are lining up, are taking their responsibility, are seeing how can we protect the most vulnerable? How can we do better? How can we, you know, recaliber the, the, the different measures? Uh, how can we support the economy? Because, of course, lots of people are unemployed and the economy is suffering immensely here as well. But there seems to be, I haven't seen, you know, big uh, elaborated but there seems to be quite a lot of support from the Swedish citizens to, towards this approach. Of course, we've had the, the, the disease coming into some elderly houses. So elderly people have died in, in, in care centers, in elderly houses. And this is, of course, a big failure. So there's a debate. Should we have started testing the staff earlier? Where did it go wrong there? This is a problem that other countries have been facing as well. And then there are scientists who are debating, is this the real good strategy? When should you start testing? How do we work? But overall, I would say there's quite a lot of support for this. And I think it will be easier and we're not there yet, easier when you, you lift the, the restrictions that are there, both for the economy, but also for the, the health system to cope with it. People will still fall, fall ill. People will still be needing intensive care. But maybe with a more constant curve, it's easier for them to cope. Okay, yeah, let's, let's hope so. Let's see. So you're a two-time EU commissioner. And before that, I believe you were Sweden's minister for EU affairs and a member of the European Parliament. So <laughs> yes, I've been all over. Yeah, I think it's safe to assume that you're a, a passionate EU supporter and you know the EU pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the EU and the European reaction to the crisis. I think most people would say that the responses to the pandemic didn't seem particularly united or coordinated among the EU member states. We saw things like export bans of medical supplies within Europe. We saw border checks, border closings. I mean, commentators are often not very good at distinguishing between the EU and European member state governments. So we need to be careful about that distinction in this conversation. I'll, I'll do my part at least to try. And so I think we'll start by saying, you know, the EU has very limited powers when it comes to 
health policy, unlike your former role as trade commissioner, where the EU has real power. Mm-hmm. Health policy is is the responsibility of national governments, and the EU can basically assist them when they want, make recommendations, things like that. So we'll have to sort of, in the conversation, talk about the EU, but then also talk about the European governments. So Commission President, the former German defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, at the end of March, March 26th, I believe it was, gave a pretty scathing critique of the European response. I'll quote her. She said, when Europe really needed to be there for each other, too many initially looked out for themselves. When Europe really needed an all-for-one spirit, too many initially gave an only-for-me response. And when Europe really needed to prove that it's not only a fair-weather union, too many initially refused to share their umbrella. So President von der Leyen is blaming country governments for a lack of solidarity here. Would you agree with her view? I do, and I think this... uh in the beginning, two months ago, it was not a beautiful moment for, for Europe. It was like, even if you're absolutely right to, to underline that the European Union as a union has no legal competence over health issues, but still it was like 70 years of integration suddenly disappeared in a couple of, of, of days. I think you have to, you know, like in all countries, we were overwhelmed by, by, by the force of this pandemic and, you know, huge pressure from, from citizens to act quickly and panicking a, a little bit because people were dying. So, but that does not justify the closing of borders, the, the very nationalistic approach that was taken in the beginning and the, the export ban on medical supplies down to, to soap and, and uh, sanitizing uh, uh, materials and so on. So I think that, that was really bad judgment to do so. However, so, so Mrs. van der Leyen is absolutely right in her criticism. I think it improved. It took some time, but then people realized that this is too big for one country to deal with. We have to cooperate. And the commission took charge and done, have done quite a lot since there, both when it comes to um, coordinating the public procurement for uh, supplies, uh, also easing the export ban. There's a stockpiling now, a joint stockpiling of medical supplies. There is a, a coordination of green files at the border so that the borders that are still closed, where that so supplies and food and goods can pass without long waiting queues. That was the case in the beginning. And also a coordination when it comes to the economic measures of support, easing of the rules so that countries can support national companies. We have very tough state aid rules in in Europe. They have been been made much more flexible to allow countries to do that. There's a coordination of economic support. Tomorrow there will be a big meeting with heads of states where they will discuss some sort of emergency fund and the budget. There are temporary employment schemes. There's the activity of a solidarity fund. There's a lot of investment to coordinate and support uh, research in order to try to find a vaccine. And there has been several proposals for for recovery. So I think they they caught up and they're also issuing guidelines now for the exit strategy as countries start gradually. And that cannot be exactly the same uh, in in all countries because everybody's in different stages of the epidemic. But at least it has to be coordinated because the, the virus doesn't respect any borders. So, so we need to know what our neighbours are doing. So I think we are, as Europeans, behaving much better now. <laughs> and you've also seen, for instance, Germany taking a lot of, uh, of very sick patients from neighbouring countries, France and Italy. You've seen doctors from all over Europe assisting other countries and sending materials. So it's becoming much better. But in the beginning, there was not a lot of coordination. And I really hope we can learn from this so that we are better prepared next time. That would be great. And if I remember 
correctly, was it after 2003? I mean, it was after maybe SARS that the European Center for Disease Control, I believe that's what it's called, was founded. And then certain measures were kind of discussed at the EU level. So it seems like it's an iterative learning process. And you mentioned the joint stockpiling, mm -hmm. right? This is, this is, of course, very controversial in the U.S. context where there's national stockpile and there's some issues with that in terms of the states. But in, in the EU, it was the case that there wasn't anything like an EU stockpile. Different countries had stockpiles and the EU was supposed to know maybe how much was in the stockpile and, mm -hmm. and help coordinate. Yeah, that, that's correct. And some countries were very well prepared for this. For instance, Finland have supplies. They had made preparations for this, whereas other countries did not have. So this is also something that we need to learn uh, for, for the future as well. And also when, when emergency issues happen like this, it, it goes very much back to your own history. I mean, some countries can issue almost martial law when there is a, an emergency to close down cities or, or to, to forbid uh, people to go out. In my country, Sweden, we don't have those laws. The, the, the prime minister cannot close down Stockholm just like that. Wow. We don't have these emergency laws. And that's because we have a peaceful history. We were not occupied during the war and things like that. So, so we have national political traditions to take into consideration as well. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned already a kind of coordination of the loosening of stay-at-home regulations. And if I remember correctly, I mean, there was a discussion of the EU commission kind of drawing up a plan and then... There was some resistance by countries saying, you know, we need to each do it according to our situation. How do you think it's going to play out? Are sort of countries going to make their decisions and the commission is going to lag behind trying to coordinate? Or do you think it's going to be, you know, a really coordinated effort? Well, I think different countries need to open up gradually at different stages, depending on how they judge the situation of the, the contagious um, virus in their country. But, but so that can maybe not be exactly the, the same day. But what is important is that, that we inform each other well in advance so that we know what happens. I mean, there are many people who are traveling and crossing borders all the time for school, for work, uh, for, for pleasure. So you need to know what your neighbor is doing uh, so that there are no surprises. And you need to know when you open the borders, you need to know when it's free to travel again so that everybody is prepared and, and can take measures. Because very, very likely, I, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> These days, everybody seems to be an expert uh, and know exactly. But I think we need to be very, very humble. But most experts and epidemiologists say that there will be a second wave. So we need to be prepared for that uh, as well. And how do we act? How do we coordinate? How do we inform each other? So that kind of coordination and information as a sort of hub that the commission can lead, I think. So the commission will have a role in sort of in the next steps and maybe in coordinating the second wave that many expect to come. It could be that the even bigger challenge in a way for the European Union will come after that, which is to say when it's not a health crisis, but it's a more acute economic crisis. Because, you know, as we know, the EU's been struggling with some of these, let's call them economic solidarity issues since after the financial crisis of 2008. And some of the countries that are likely to be very hit by this crisis are the same ones that have been dealing with repercussions of 2008. There's been talk about a new Marshall Plan for Europe and rebuilding Europe um, coming from different quarters. And there's talk of something called Corona Bonds, which is a new way to bring up the old conversation of... Mm -hmm. Um, euro bonds and debt mutualization. So, Indeed. I mean, what do you what do you think about this? Is Europe 
ready to do this this time? Is it going to be a different conversation than it was last time? How optimistic are you? I think all countries are affected by this. There are millions and millions of people who are unemployed and who will be unemployed. Some of them will will recover, but some countries, some companies have already gone bankrupt. And of course, everything related to tourism, events, restaurants, hotels, they are suffering immensely right now. That is going to to hurt economically all countries, some more uh, than others. But also it depends on how the global system is is recovering. Of course, I mean, we will see a um, institution such as the World Bank and IMF and so have already issued warning that this crisis probably even worse, not only only the 2008 crisis, but also the crisis from 1930. So, so it will hurt the world a lot. And we see a decrease in trade and so on. And Europe is very trade dependent. Finance ministers agreed just last week on a 500 billion euros uh, fund for emergency measures addressing the economic fallout. So that is already agreed. And now there is a discussion which runs in parallel to a discussion that has been going on for a year on a long-term budget for the European Union, which is hard to to agree upon, of course, because it's a lot of money and there's a lot of political considerations. But but there will be some sort of joint efforts to support each other. Exactly how that is being discussed right now. The, the Eurobond issue is, as you said, many years old. I don't think that will fly because there is a resistance. And right now, there seems only Italy is defending this. And why are people against? Well, some countries are, are very much against because they don't think you should issue loan without any conditions and without the whole European Union, especially the rich country sort of acting as grantors uh, of that. And the problem with Italy is that whereas everybody recognized they have suffered immensely, and I think everybody really wants to help Italy, that Italy has been mishandling their economy for quite some time. So there is lack of trust there. And that that's brutal to say, but that is the truth. You need to know that the money you give to Italy is used to rebuild and to handle the effects of the, the crisis and not the old structural problems that has been there for decades. And that is a discussion. Tomorrow evening, European time, there will be a a meeting between heads of state of all the member states, and they will discuss the budget and, of course, how to to deal with this. There will be some sort of solidarity fund coming out of this, and there might be some sort of joint loan guarantee. But the eurobonds, wherever you call them corona bonds or solidarity bonds, that that question is too controversial to fly. But there there will be something. And there are different versions of that coming from France and from Italy, from Spain, from from Germany. So so I think they will agree on on something uh, a way forward, but not on all the details uh, tomorrow night. The uh, meeting you're talking about tomorrow night, which is for our listeners Thursday, the 23rd, you think they'll be an agreement uh, coming out of the meeting? Not an agreement on detail, but an agreement on okay. in principle. And then they will ask the commission to come up with a more specific plan on how to use uh, that, that money, probably. Sweden is not usually sort of on the front lines of fiscal hawks, let's put it that way. You know, Finland, Germany, the Netherlands are usually in that category. And then you have usually France, Spain in the other. Sweden, to me, at least from the German view, seems to have a kind of slightly softer position in these things. Is the debate about it different in Sweden this time in terms of bailouts or aid? Well, actually, Sweden is part of the frugal club with the the Netherlands, uh, Finland and Austria, who are at the forefront of, of having a more restrictive budget. I don't agree with that strategy. I think we we have a situation even before Corona 
where Britain left the European Union leaves a hole in the budget. We have increasing amount of, of tasks that we need to solve jointly, everything from fighting terrorism, border control, massive investment in research, uh, innovation and so on. And that costs, we're talking about 1% of the collective GDP of the European Union. And the Commission proposed to, to raise that with point something, one point one, one point zero nine. I mean, marginally. Yeah. And Sweden has been part of the frugal club there, uh, which I'm, I'm not agreeing with that strategy, but <laughs> that's not for me to decide. Um, <laughs> I think everybody realizes now that that if you if you focus the the budget really much on not only recovering short term but also long term, making sure that Europe is stronger out of this innovation, uh, small companies, research, reskilling of of people who are unemployed, and so on. I, I think maybe there is a a little bit easier to come to an agreement. But all budget discussions are difficult, always. Yes, there's nothing easy about talking about money, even if it's an increase of 0 0.09 or something. You, at the very end, you talked about the longer term. No one can really know what to expect in the longer term, but let's just talk about it anyway and maybe talk about trade specifically, uh, which you know was your last post. So as I said, you were trade commissioner in your last role. And it's clear, even if we've been talking about it sort of in the context of Europe, that it's a huge global economic shock. You mentioned some numbers earlier. I saw earlier today that the World Trade Organization is forecasting something between a 13 to 32 yeah. percent drop in global trade. And it could be even bigger, they say, compared to previous years. If it's bigger than 2008, I mean, this is a something that many of us can't really imagine. And then the off-road is also slightly hard to imagine. I mean, do you think we're looking at something that's going to lead to, is already changing the landscape of global trade and will change it? Or what's your thinking in terms of where we're heading? Well, obviously, trade will uh, will be hurt a lot and, and it will go down because the people are still, still in crisis. Even if China is coming a little bit now out and, and recovering and the wheels are starting turning in, in China. I mean, China is very much export dependent and someone has to, to buy their, their goods as well. And, and for the moment that that looks on a short term, that it will slightly recuperate the production uh, and so on. But some countries have already started to redirect what we call the value chains, meaning that mm -hmm. the, the dependence of some material that come, for instance, from China is something that companies have been talking about, that maybe they're too dependent from China. They need to start looking towards a broader market. Uh, so that can happen. We also see that a lot of companies going bankrupt in, in Europe or are very feeble that the China is out shopping and, and, and buying them up, which has led to warnings coming from the highest levels that, you know, watch your, your companies. Of course, if there is investment um, and that can save companies, that can be very, very positive. It can lead to, to saving jobs and, and uh, investment and so on. But if we're talking about very critical infrastructure, it could also be politically sensitive. So this is something where a red flag has been waved in Europe, but I think in the US as well, also before the corona crisis, but, but even more uh, right now. I really hope that the world will come out from this saying that we need to cooperate. We need to make sure that we reform and strengthen the WTO. We need the US to come back and, and work with the rest of us to reform WTO, to strengthen it. It's not a perfect organization, of course not, but let's work to, to reform it because the alternative is a total rule of the jungle. We need to make sure that organizations such as IMF, World Bank, but also G20 encourages trade, try to, to come to agreements, maybe to scrap all tariffs and export restrictions on medical equipment. 
that could be a good thing to start with, but also make sure that, that trade agreements are, are being pursued, that they are respected, that we do more. Hopefully we can resume discussions between Europe and, and the US in, in that regard. But it could also be that this leads to even more protectionism in every country on its own. And that, that's, of course, the real scary scenario. The, the truth is we don't really know today. As you say, we don't we don't know how this is going to turn out or, or what's going to come after in terms of changes to the economy and changes to cooperation. If you could sort of take this as an opportunity to fix things you would have liked to be done differently or structured differently, right? If we're sort of going to a blueprint of rebuilding European economic cooperation within a global structure, is there something that you would put near the top of your wish list? Something you kind of hope comes out of this? That's a very vast uh, question uh, in, in a way. But, but, but I would hope that, that when the, the urgent crisis starts to calm down and when, when we can sort of look, look up and see that there is a future, that, that we would focus our economy, of course, on the future, on uh, building away the obstacles that are still there. There are still a lot of obstacles in the internal market for it to function in an ideal way to get way of, of the remaining tariffs and administrative complications that are still there, that we would focus our economic support on jointly having strategies for, for innovation, for research, for artificial intelligence, for green, the green economy, that we don't forget about our green commitments that we have made uh, and that they are, are crucial, that, that we put our research even more coordinated than before and that we make sure that when the next pandemic or the next crisis like this, that we have preparation that we have systems, that we have, you know, plans, checklists that we all commit to do in the spirit of, of solidarity. Uh, this is hard, of course, because when people, when citizens are dying, I mean, they are putting pressure on their on their politicians to ask, act very rapidly. Sometimes, you know, we don't have time to do the proper analysis. But I would really hope that we can come out of this uh, stronger. We, we need to watch also the, the politics because uh, most countries have taken taken extraordinary measures. They have been allowed to bypass normal legislation and national parliaments, which is totally comprehensible. But there are also countries in Europe, elsewhere as well, but in Europe, you see Hungary, for instance, where Prime Minister Orban, even if he has an absolute majority, has now um, pushed through a, a law where he can rule by decree and it has no end. And it has no limits. And this is something where lawyers and experts and NGOs and, and Council of Europe, etc., has been raising a lot of, of warning. And you cannot abolish democracy in the name of, of a virus. And this we've seen in other places as well, where journalists are not allowed to publish or, or where the public debate is being oppressed. And this is really, really something we need to watch out for. Yes, indeed. It's a worrying trend and a kind of parallel threat to our democracy and society while we're also dealing with, you know, immediate health threat, economic ramifications. It is uh, it is indeed quite a challenging picture, all the more so that we hope that Europe has now, as you say, in the, in the second wave, regained its more cooperative instinct and is making good progress and working together. So let's hope that continues moving forward and that we get to some of the positive you know, effects coming out of this of good coordinated planning and future-oriented planning as we head into, hopefully, a post-pandemic world at some point in the near future. Well, thank you again very much, Cecilia Maelstrom, for talking to us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. 